This is Transforming Culture, an MBC podcast. everyone to Transforming Culture, the podcast. My name is Luke LaRock, and I'm the director of ministry at Muskoka Bible Center. NBC hosted a series of lectures over the summer about controversial cultural issues, and we've turned those lectures into a podcast. This episode happens to be our second to last episode of the season. So if you're tuning in for the first time, I'd encourage you to check out our archive of episodes. The first episode in particular helps explain what this podcast is all about. I was excited to get to meet and talk with Steve West, our guest today, about social justice. First, I admire his sense of humor, which comes out really well in the seminar talk that you're about to hear. For context, we ask each speaker on Monday nights in the summer to limit their talk to about 30 minutes, and Steve made sure that the audience knew his time limitation. You can't see it on the podcast, obviously, but I was smiling loudly at the back of the NBC chapel every time he made a joke about whether or not he was running overtime. Secondly, Steve tells it the way it is. He is unafraid of his rock-solid belief in what the Bible says and teaches, and he will tell you his opinion without compromise. His sense of humor and his uncompromising views meant that we got into it during our Q&A after the session, and I really enjoyed that, but more about that later. Steve West has a PhD and serves as the pastor of Madoc Baptist Church in Madoc, Ontario. In addition to pastoral ministry, he serves as an adjunct professor at Heritage College and Seminary in Cambridge. He has preached and taught courses in Africa, Asia, Europe, North America, and South America. Steve is the author of several books and a frequent contributor to a variety of publications. Recent books include Resurrection, Scripture, and Reformed Apologetics, Head, Heart, Hands, Life Transforming Apologetics, and Published Sermons in a Contemporary Handbook for Weddings and Funerals and Other Occasions. His ministry focuses on biblical preaching, theological engagement, and exploring and defending the Christian worldview. That's enough from me, though. I'd love for you to join us for our conversation from this past summer with Steve West about social justice. All right. Well, it's a great privilege to be able to address you on these issues. This is a little bit different for me. I'm used to preaching uh, here at NBC. This is a little bit more of uh, a lecture, and uh, I hope that that's Okay, that's just the way it's going to be. Uh, Also, I have to say that uh, 29 and a half minutes is not a terribly long period of time. Uh, So I plan on telling you absolutely everything you need to know about social justice and every issue that pertains thereto, but I'm gonna have to speak very rapidly. So you need to listen well. Um, I actually, the last couple of weeks I've been recording Uh, lectures for Heritage for their distance learning courses in philosophy and ethics. And I think uh, speaking into my computer by myself, I recorded about four hours on the material I'm going to try to cover 
in what is now 28 minutes. Uh, so I'm going to be moving quickly and that may seem like, uh, so the, the risk is this, it may seem like I'm giving you a pretty superficial or shallow analysis of these things. And that could very well be the way that it comes across. And my thinking on these issues might be superficial and shallow. So that might be representative. Uh, but I am intentionally just skating the surface to try to connect a couple dots along the way. And then I would defend these things at great length if I had that kind of time. So all of that goes to say, this is just a bare introduction. There's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I'm going to give you a framework for social justice that I'm gonna to try to illustrate using two contemporary issues how I think we should talk about these things. And that's really the point of tonight is how do we as Christians begin to actually have profitable engagement on these sorts of issues in society? And I'll be very honest, uh, the last two years or so has made me relatively discouraged, wondering if even inside of the church we can have profitable discussions about things we disagree on without splitting our churches, let alone to then step outside into a sort of multicultural, pluralistic environment. You know, we, we can't even keep our own house in order when we don't agree on certain issues. So we desperately need to recover an ability to actually have a civil discourse with people who don't agree with us. And if we can't do that, the, sort of the game's lost to begin with. So I really want to sort of emphasize sort of a strategy which can apply in all sorts of different issues for how we actually engage in conversations which address issues of justice, but then bridge to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's, that's the goal for tonight. It'll be very quick. First, uh, in terms of social justice, it's very interesting uh, that you know, you, in the church you get, uh, and in, in wider society, you get a disagreement about whether social justice is a good thing. Now, it is difficult to argue against social justice being good. Uh, because it would seem that the opposite of social justice is social injustice. And if you're arguing that that's a good thing, you need to stop talking. Okay, so the first thing is, well, let's get our vocabulary straight. You know, what do we mean by these terms? And of course, and one of the difficulties is it seems that social justice is increasingly not a term that's used for a theory of how to organize society in a, bene a benevolent and utilitarian sort of way, but rather it's often now almost defined or synonymous with a particular ideological political position where rather than arguing that we want justice in society and trying to determine what that justice means, social justice is already defined often in very progressive leftist fashion. And if you're not a progressive leftist, then you react against it. And so I think one of the things that you want to do is you want to neither define social justice in terms of outcomes that are at home in a political leftism, but also resist the temptation to swing the pendulum the other way and define social justice as if it is the main calling card of the Republican Party in the United States. Neither one is right. And so what we need to do is we need to approach so social justice in terms of, first of all, what is society? And second of all, what is justice? 
Now you undoubtedly, this is where if I had a little bit more time, I'd talk more about these things. You undoubtedly understand all of your social contract theory and political philosophy. So I'll actually bypass what society is. We'll assume that there's a working definition and understanding of that. I want to talk a little bit about what justice is. Justice is virtually a synonym for righteousness in scripture. And righteousness quite literally means to be in the right. That's all it means. And so if you are on the right side of a standard, then you are righteous. This is why Phineas, when he stops the plague by killing the, the idolatrous couple who are committing adultery, when Phineas kills them, God says, later on in the Psalms, the inspired author says, what Phineas did established him as righteous. It doesn't mean that he was perfectly, sinlessly, spotlessly righteous like Jesus is, but in that circumstance, he was righteous because he did the right thing. And so to be righteous is just to do the right thing. And righteousness becomes a synonym for justice. So globally, to be just is to be on the right side of God's standards. To be righteous is to be in the right. To practice justice means that you are on the right side of God's view of things. That's all it means. It's very simple. The problem is we are so often not on the right side of God's standards that we need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us to cover us for our unrighteousness. Now, when you're talking about social justice, then what you mean is in a community of people embedded in a social political relationship, there are more or less ways of organizing society, which are more or less on the side of how God views certain issues. So social justice then becomes the organization of a community of people so that laws are fair and align with God's perspectives on right and wrong and moral issues. In other words, you actually can't have justice. Justice and righteousness are both literally incoherent concepts unless you have a standard by which you measure whether or not you're on the right side of it or not. In other words, unless there's a fixed objective standard, you can't be righteous because you can't be in the right if there is no standard. And if you can't be in the right, then there literally is no such thing as justice, which means this. Social justice is actually an incoherent, vacuous concept unless there's a God. You can only have justice if you have a God who is the standard of right and wrong. And then you can only organize societies in ways which are pleasing or displeasing to him, and that's the only way you can measure if you're righteous or not. That means that's the only way you can measure if you're just or not. And so your whole community, the only way you can ever have a community that has justice is if there's a God. Now, that means that Christians of all people on earth ought to be concerned with justice. And because God has designed us to live in community and we are social beings, of all people on earth, Christians ought to be the most concerned with social justice. But then the key is you have to define both terms in biblical, not secular categories. 
If you look to the world for wisdom in social justice, you actually won't have justice at all. Like, literally, I mean, not just you'll be wrong, it's that the concept doesn't exist. The concept is incoherent. And so we need to recapture, this is a wider step back, but we need to, re, we need to relocate and reframe questions of social justice, not in the first instance in political dichotomies of right-wing, left-wing, Democrat, Republican. We need to relocate discussions of social justice in Christian or non-Christian worldview. The worldview is essential. And without the Christian worldview, without the biblical perspective on reality, justice will never be done, but it's literally not even possible. Now, that's just one thing to tuck into your mind. And, and uh, that doesn't count for my time. That's just for free. Uh, so starting now. Um, <sighs> When we talk about social justice, then the other thing we need to understand, of course, is that there are different cultures. So we have to understand, well, what is a culture? Because we always want to say that we want to resist being shaped by culture, but the reality is the church is as shaped by culture as any other entity in the world. And if, and if you doubt that, actually, I'm very intentional. Uh, you, know, you might think, well, he's just, he's just fashionable up there. And that is true. Uh, but, but you have to understand, of course, that the very fact that I'm wearing jeans tonight means that we are not in a 1920s fundamentalist culture where you would all be in trouble for showing up without wearing a dress or a suit and tie. Clothing. Fashion. It's a mark of culture. Technology. Mark of culture. Architecture. Interior design. You, you, every one of our churches is, is embedded in culture. Hopefully, it shapes culture a little bit, too. But and it's not a bad thing. I mean, you, you, if, if it wasn't for a shared culture, we'd have no point of contact. We wouldn't be able to talk to one another. We'd have no shared categories and frames of reference. So culture's not a bad thing inherently. In fact, shared culture is necessary to have relationships. Not bad at all. But there are certainly elements of culture which are dangerous. It's dangerous for the church to be sort of snookered by contemporary culture. It's dangerous for the church to live like it's still the 1950s and not realize that they're still snookered by culture. It's just a suburban culture from 70 years ago that they haven't updated. We are very much influenced by culture. So culture then is, there's different ways of defining it, but basically it's, it's, you know, it's a set of beliefs or practices, tools, habits, relationships, artifacts that are created by human beings and sort of wheel, uh, weld us together, okay? So that's sort of the, the a working definition of culture. The problem that we have as evangelicals is this. Although evangelicalism was never the dominant culture in Canada, England, United States, roughly Judeo-Christian values, whatever that means, did have a, a profound influence in the shaping of our society. But over time, a dominant cultural group can either by sort of slow implosion or by being pushed out by a stronger group or by having their ideas marginalized, a dominant cultural force over time can very quickly become a weaker cultural force until a group that was a dominant cultural group becomes a subculture. 
A subculture is a group that is characterized by having beliefs and interests that are at variance with the interests and beliefs of the, major, of, the, of the dominant group in society. Evangelicals in Canada are roughly about 7% of the population, which means that out of every 100 people, 93, of who, 93 people out of every 100 that you meet in Canada will not be an evangelical Christian. So is evangelicalism the dominant cultural force in Canada? Not even close. If you're an evangelical, you belong to a subculture by definition. Now that means that the way you talk to each other will be jargon laden. That is, you, you basically end up with your own linguistic system of expressing and thinking and all of the rest. So that in our churches, so today, honestly, you take someone who's never been in church before and you drop them into an evangelical church and they probably don't understand half of what you're talking about. The shorthand in preaching. I mean, you ever think, you, know, you, you think you're, you're faithfully witnessing, you say, well, you know what you need to do is, is you're a sinner, and so you need to believe that God loves you so much, he sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And literally, none of that makes sense if you don't have a church background. You don't know what sin is, you don't know what, the, and, and you try to think, well, how on earth, it, it almost sounds this way, if I were to go up to my next door neighbor, I was going to say, I just want you to know, you're a bit of a jerk, and I haven't liked living next to you at all, and in fact, you've offended me greatly, but just to show you how much I love you, I killed my daughter the other day. What are, what are you talking about? God loves you so much, but you've been a, a terrible person, he killed his son for you. If, if you don't have a biblical category of atonement, that's, that's just crazy. And then you, you, you show up on a, you got up early on a Sunday morning to go sing songs to this God. It's, it's just weird. It's quite literally cultic because a subgroup is like a cult. And that's how the church is viewed. If the church is thought of at all, it's cultic. Now, when you come to engage in cultural issues, then you have to translate your thoughts out of your cultic subgroup into vocabulary and concepts that the dominant group will understand. In other words, there is likely to be a massive barrier between how you think and process issues and how you talk about issues and how people hear you when you speak. And so one of the things that we def uh, desperately need to do is we desperately need to learn to understand because a subculture has beliefs and interests that are at variance with the dominant culture. We desperately need to learn what are the beliefs and interests of the dominant culture so we can engage it. And in my judgment, we're doing a much better job understanding our concerns and interests and actually horrifically misinterpreting what people in the dominant culture are saying. And so then our witness is extraordinarily reactionary and defensive and frankly misguided. So we'll, I'll, I'll address that uh, in a moment. Now, this morning I mentioned that I was going to speak a little bit about intersectionality. And uh, I, I would, but I, okay, I, I still will. Because I had 29 and a half minutes. I'm taking my half minute on this one. And half minute in my subculture is code for a good five. But just so you know. Uh, so one of the things that in terms of intersectionality, you, you hear this, this language being used a lot. And it seems like to me this is one of those obvious cases where people in the church have a knee-jerk negative reaction to things that they literally don't understand. 
because they heard a podcast. And every podcast in the world is garbage, except this NBC one. I just want you to know that. This one's going to be good. Uh, you know, but you can't trust any of the other ones. Uh, you know, I, I haven't been on them yet. Like, literally none of them. <laughs> so, you know, this one, though, this one's going to be out of the park. And so you've heard, or you, you read a tweet by, you know, anyone. If, if you are competent to put out a tweet, you must have mastered the literature of intersectionality. So if you think it's bad, it must be. You know, so you've read your tweets, you, you've read your, you're listening to your podcast. You don't think you read podcasts. I actually don't know what they are. Uh, but you, you've engaged a little bit. And it's like Christians have, oh, it's intersectionality. It's so bad. No, it's not. It's actually profoundly obviously true. It's applied badly in some ideological circles. But intersectionality is this. You live, think about roads, think about, an inter, think about an intersection. You live at an intersection, and there are certain things about you which will change and shape your experience. So, does it matter? Do you experience the world differently if you are biologically male or female? Yes. So, Biological sex is part of an intersectional analysis. And if anyone has a problem with that, I can't defend it. It seems intuitively and obviously right to me. Does skin color affect how you interact in society? Yes. If you disagree, then explain to me apartheid in South Africa and how skin color had nothing to do with experience. Or Jim Crow laws. Explain how, how skin color had nothing to do with experience. So biological sex, ethnicity. You're downtown Toronto on Bay Street, and someone comes around the corner wearing you know, a, a, an expensive suit and carrying a briefcase, and they're walking down you know, the street towards you. What's your reaction? Are you nervous? My guess is probably not. I, I used to teach in downtown Toronto. I've been in downtown Toronto a lot. There are other people who come walking towards you, clearly not affluent, clearly living on the street, and how someone is dressed and presents themselves, someone's socioeconomic class, that's a big deal with how people treat them and how they experience the world. So someone is a black homeless man. That's the intersection they live at. An intersectional analysis says they will experience discrimination in those three different ways at different times, and that is clearly and obviously true. Just clearly and obviously true. Sometimes they're discriminated against on the basis of their color. Sometimes they're discriminated against on the basis of their class. Sometimes, and you think Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks in her life was obviously discriminated on the basis of her skin color. I guarantee at that time in the southern U.S., she was also discriminated against on the basis of her sex. Guaranteed. Intersectional analysis says Rosa Parks would have experienced discrimination on the basis of her sex and her skin color, and I cannot see how any thoughtful person can disagree with that. It's been well known that there has been a lot of discrimination against LGBTQ plus people in the African-American community. That's, that's been well known. It's been sort of documented. Sexual orientation has been another way that people have been experienced discrimination. So, so you, start, you should start adding this up. As a Canadian right now, I can't go to Russia. I, I've been in Ukraine, but I can't go to Russia. So am I discriminated against on the basis of my citizenship? Yes. But let's be honest, in history, being 
a white, educated male coming from Canada has conferred on me no little advantage in how I've experienced the world. And if, and if you want to disagree with that, I actually, well, there is a Q&A. I'll be happy to defend that. And intersectional analysis just has people experienced. And that's just right. Just obviously, obviously right. Problem is this. The way it's been used is, and there's a long genealogy of the history of ideas, which is important to frame out uh, in order to, to fully understand this. But truth has no longer been taken as truth. Truth has been taken universally. <sighs> University is a really strong word. In one stream of Western thought, which we sort of colloquially call postmodernism, but probably is not really, that's not the best term for it. What you end up with is this. All there is is perspective and idea and opinion, and you hold the opinions that are going to give you the most power in society. So truth, quote unquote, is a tool that you will use to exert your will to power, Nietzsche, and, to, and truth is a convenient tool of power for those in political, who have political might so that truth, truth, quote unquote, systems are actually tools of oppression. So the narrative you tell is the narrative which gives you the most power in society. So, so in that set of analysis, Michel Foucault, for example, would say, well, Steve, you know, obviously you, you believe the Christian worldview. Look, you, you, get, you get to go to NBC as a result. Like anyone who believe anything that gets, the, that gets them at NBC, it, this is how I get power in my little community. I mean, I'm not, I'm not smart enough or handsome enough to make it big in the world. I had to go to the church. And just, just like, just like, okay, I won't say anything else. Uh, I was going to make a reference. It, when I, at least when I was growing up, it seemed that, oh, I'll get myself in trouble. But you know, when I was growing up, it seemed that at least some people who were big in the Christian music industry went to the Christian music industry because they just wouldn't have made it, you know, in, in the world. And I think the same is probably true of, of pastors. And some of us, we just can't be successful anywhere else. So we go to the church. That's what we do. You know, Michel Foucault would say, you do that because that's the place where you get control and power and influence. And, we, and everyone does this. So in an intersectional, intersectional, intersectional analysis, what you end up with this is saying, Here's a tool which is completely, absolutely, irrefutably right. But then what we do is we say, the more areas of intersection where you can be discriminated against, the more you are inherently oppressed. And the more areas that, that where you get privilege, the more you are by definition an oppressor. And so what you do is in looking at all of the intersectional points of the individual, you hyper-individualize them, and then ironically treat them as a class, which is literally the definition of stereotyping. And so an intersectional analysis has often been used to set up this oppressors and oppressed. And the oppressors and the oppressed always fit into the categories that give the intelligentsia power. Because it allows them to then control the shaping of social policy and all of the rest. Now, all of that goes to say this. The right response is not to react negatively against intersectionality. Intersectionality, again, is just obviously true. The right response is to say, wait a minute. 
The way this data point is being applied through the grid is not legitimate. In other words, we have got to learn to separate, if we're going to have social justice conversations, we have got to learn to differentiate between the conclusion that is wrong and the premises that are right. And anyone who understands logic knows you can have right premises and still infer wrong solutions from the data. But what we do is we are forever throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And then people who know what they're talking about look at us as if in the church, all we are is this sort of misanthropic little subculture who doesn't know anything. And we are closing doors, which actually we can open for gospel conversations. Now, I do have to do this um, much, much, much faster than I was hoping to, but I'll give you two. And now inside of seven minutes, I am going to give you everything you need to know in terms of a solution about um, racism and environmentalism. I, I, I detect cynicism. <clears throat> so... The first thing, some of you have probably heard about critical race theory. And if you're coming out of an, what I would take, consider to probably be a right-wing evangelicalism, uh, that is probably a buzzword which is negative. And then the question would be, because I've heard people who, who are not at all happy with critical race theory, um, I haven't met as many people who have actually read the literature as the number of people who don't like it. But I find very odd. Always, always interesting to not like something that you haven't read about. So then the question is, well, what is it? And, and it's been amazing to me that I've often actually not been able to have many people who are against it be able to even define it accurately. Also nice to actually know what you're against if you're against something, usually common courtesy. So critical race theory was begun actually as a very uh, sort of academic uh, approach to understanding why there was discriminatory laws in the United States and if you know the Jim Crow era, when critical race theory was born, it was born in a time when there was discriminatory laws in the United States on the basis of race. And so there were legal theorists at Harvard and other places who were trying to figure out why this was the case and how, what you could do to change the law. So it had an activist bent. So far, so good, right? Now, as you work through this, the arguments get to shift so that where there are different outcomes, it's because of unfair social structures. So racism has been redefined on a popular level, whereas it used to mean personal prejudice, I'm a bigot. Now it no longer means, do I have personal prejudice? It means society is structured with systems which perpetuate discrimina discrimination and unfairness. And Christians have been, some Christians have been all upset about this. And yet, when I think about apartheid in South Africa, and when I think about slavery in, we, we, in Canada, we love to imagine that it was only the states that had slavery. We had slavery too. And yes, we had the Underground Railroad because we, there was the Underground Railroad sending people north to Canada because Canada got rid of slavery earlier, but we still had slavery to get rid of, if we can remember that. And so you know, what, what you have in North America is, of course, you had systems of discrimination. Jim Crow era was societal structures that were systematically discriminating against people of certain skin colors. 
redlining in neighborhoods meant that people of certain skin colors could not get mortgages from the bank to buy property in certain areas. That was systemic discrimination. That's what it was. And so then to say, well, is it personal prejudice or is it systems of discrimination? It's both. Because you don't walk out in the forest and find a society growing on a tree. People make it. And so people bring their biases and their prejudices to society, and we shape society in either ways that are just or unjust. And part of the way that we do oppress people, because you also are mad if you think that there is no oppression in the history of the world. The way that people set up oppression in societies is not just through personal prejudice, it is through structures, it's through systems. There's not even a debate. The question then becomes practically, are those systems still operative today? To what extent are they still operative today? But you see, but if you just sort of respond against the, the theory, you're once again closing off profitable discussion because the theory itself actually is based on an empirical fact. It's how you work the data out and the conclusions you draw from the data, which is problematic from a Christian worldview. So what I want to suggest is this. Okay, two minutes now. What I want to suggest is this. The way to approach these topics, and you will recall, I did say this is very quick. The way to approach the topics, in my judgment, is this. Identify the intuition and the principle that is right and good and biblical. And then show... So you establish that common ground. And then you show that it is actually the Christian worldview, it is God's revelation, which makes sense of the intuition, makes sense of the problem, and then actually gives you the solution. And so with race, I would do something like this. One, race itself is inherently an ambiguous concept. So the Bible actually doesn't know of races, it knows of ethnicities, but there is one race. There is the human race. And inside of that human race, part of our horrific, sinful treatment of one another is that we have divided each other and discriminated against people on the basis of completely secondary and tertiary characteristics. So the sin of racism isn't that one race discriminates against another, it's that members of the same human race are fighting each other, and it's a family battle, it's, a, it's, it's fratricide, it's killing our brothers and sisters because they just look a little tiny bit different in the most superficial categories imaginable. And they are everyone, every single human being, regardless of ethnicity, is an image bearer of God. And so that makes racism not only a social ill, it makes it, it, makes it an offense to the infinite holy God who has made every human being in his image. And how we treat his image bearers is a reflection of how we view him. And so if anyone should be upset about racial prejudice, it ought to be Christians, because racial prejudice in one sense, in, in a small b sense, is blasphemy against God. And Christians ought to be very upset about that. And then Christians ought to work to make sure that our sinful hearts are not perpetuating personal prejudices or disadvantages in societies. Which is why it's no surprise that a lot of the leaders in the civil rights movement drew their support from scripture. Now, you then want to look at Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. 
He speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. He welcomes in a Roman centurion representing the might of the Gentile world. And in the first century, there really is only Jew and Gentile. And Jesus is the savior of all of them. He's the only savior. He's a savior of the world. And then in Ephesians, what you get is that Jesus has reconciled Jew and Gentile together and reconciled them to God on the cross. So that reconciliation is first and foremost vertical, but it also is horizontal because we have destroyed the unity of the human family. And so Jesus brings all of God's children together, reconciles them together in peace, and brings them to the Father through his death on the cross, creating a new humanity. And that's where you get sort of those verses in Paul about now there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ, which means in Christ there is no advantage whatsoever in an intersectional analysis. No one is more oppressed or less oppressed when it comes to their relationship with Jesus. No one has favored status or not favored status when it comes to their relationship with Jesus. Everyone, every single human being is absolutely equal before Jesus. Every single one of us is an image bearer fallen into sin who needs a redeemer desperately. And there is no advantage to anyone at the foot of the cross. And so Jesus takes sinners redeems them and reconciles them to the Father, and in so doing, reconciles them to each other. And then the eschatological vision is that from every tribe, every language, every ethnicity, every spot of the globe, there are people, and all of that diversity is maintained. God loves diversity, but God loves diversity in a fundamental unity. And that diversity is beautiful because it's built around the unity of creation and redemption in Jesus Christ. And so the eschatological vision is racial prejudice is destroyed and everyone of every ethnicity is together worshiping the lamb forever and ever. That was Steve's talk about social justice. And as I said earlier, we got right into it during our Q&A together. It was such a blast getting to talk to Steve about these questions. It is a long Q&A session, but I want you to look forward to the most embarrassing mistake that I made all season. I am a big fan of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, and I absolutely put my foot into it by getting them mixed up in front of Steve, who happens to be the professor who teaches the course on Lewis at Heritage. It was a nice humbling moment, which I'm sure you'll all enjoy. Steve, thank you so much for speaking tonight. Uh, we are here still at NBC doing this podcast Q&A after you spoke this evening uh, to about 200 people in the chapel, and we are just so blessed to have had you here. Uh, I'm grateful that you spoke about uh, so many kind of wide-ranging issues. I know that the podcast audience isn't going to get to hear the Q&A that the audience heard tonight, uh, but just your willingness to go into the dark corners and kind of fight for truth and light is really encouraging. And so the first thing I just want to say is thank you. Um, that's that is something that I think we need as Christians, and I'm encouraged that you're you're doing that. Um, kind of as we dive into the Q&A here, the thing I wanted to jump on right away and ask about, you, you made this really interesting comment about cults and subcultures. Um, and right away that piqued my interest because so many people push away the word cult as, hey, this is not a thing that we want to be associated with, right? Like that's a cult, this is a cult, I'm not a part of a cult. Um, and yet you almost seem to kind of embrace it. And I'm curious, can you maybe expound on that a little bit or help us understand where that's coming from. Uh, so first of all, it's a privilege to be here. I, I appreciated the, the Q&A. It is unfortunate 
that the actual live Q and A with the audience wasn't recorded because I think my answers were brilliant in every in every, every everyone every was just one. Yeah. and and now yeah. they won't be nearly as good. Uh, we will never know. <laughs> that's right. These will be the fallible versions. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so I think uh, in terms of cult. Uh, it can be a bit of a neutral word. So when we when we talk about uh, Old Testament, sometimes we can talk about uh, the cultists that, and that just means uh, the tabernacle system, priestly system, sacrificial system. So it's a bit of a neutral word there. When we think about cult, uh, we probably think of you know, Walter Martin's class about Kingdom of the Cults. Uh, you know, when we hear about cults, we think Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. Um, Christian science. And in that sense, cult is being defined by the canons of confessional Christian orthodoxy over centuries of church history. And in that sense, cult by its definition is sort of deviant from the norm. Fair enough. When you look at evangelicals as being in, in a Canadian context. So, so it would not be cultic in a number of other countries around the world, for example. But if you, I know missionaries in France, and they will say that they're very reluctant to introduce themselves as pastors because that's associated with cults. So, so to, be, to introduce yourself as an evangelical, in France, evangelicalism is a cult. Like you're looked at the way that a lot of people today, if a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, you may not dislike them as a person. But, but you, you just, roll your eyes and lock it just yeah, to make sure they don't come yeah, in. Yeah. Exactly. Like you just have this sort of this negative response and you just realize they are not conforming at all to the mainstream views or the perspectives and positions that you have. Um, I think as evangelicals in Canada, we just need to recognize. So in the same way, that if you hear about a member of one of these, what we have traditionally defined as cults, you just think they're going to have a lot of very odd beliefs. Maybe so, you know, maybe even some like sort of deviant practices. Um, mainstream society looks at evangelicalism that way. They don't really know what we believe. In the fact, frankly, if I were to talk to a lot of Christ evangelical Christians, they don't really know what the more they don't they've never read the Book of Mormon. They don't listen to. They don't go to Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints assemblies. Yeah, you know, they don't listen to podcasts. They have, they have no idea what you know, Mormonism is about. Um, and so, in the same way that we just sort of look at this as this weird group, and if they start talking, they're just talking, cr you know, crazy stuff. That's how our society looks at us. We are we are a cult in the wider culture. And so, I think it is actually really important for us to understand that we have this subculture status. And so you get lots of subcultures. So there may be a jazz subculture um, or a rap subculture musically. And there's probably a polka subculture or whatever. That's my all favorite personally. Yeah, yeah me yeah. too. I'm part of that subculture. My, my favorite scene in Home Alone is when they're doing the polka in the back <laughs> of that right. van trying to get home to Chicago. John Candy. Exactly. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. Um, and so, so, you know, there's lots of subcultures, but they're not all religious. And so when you get the fusion of a subculture that's religious, in most people's minds, that's basically what a cult is. Now, most people in society are not going to think about the church as a cult because that's a word we use of the groups that are semi-Christian semi in terms of the language they use, but they're not confessionally orthodox. So no one in the world is going to say, you guys are a cult. Actually, although some, some might. But we need to just understand in terms of the perception people have, they will view us roughly the way we view 
Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And that means you need to work a lot harder to recognize you are you're already behind the eight ball. If you're part of a religious subculture, when you try to speak into the dominant culture, particularly when we're seen as being pretty bigoted. So I, you know, I've done university dialogues and uh, presentations, and I know I get up in a, in a secular university lecture room, open forum. Very few people outside of you know the the power to change your university Christian fellowship. Very few people in that auditorium actually know anything I believe doctrinally or theologically. They don't know what Christians believe. What they know is I'm a bigot. And so even to be a Christian is to be tied to what is perceived as moral bigotry in society. It's very interesting. So, so you just, I think we just need to understand that we're not coming from a position of power. People don't look at us as being morally good. They're not aspiring to be us. They look at us as being on the margins and actually usually pretty poor for society. And in that sense, the word cult, I think, may be helpful for us. I wouldn't overuse it. Yeah. You know, it, but it's so interesting because you know, people, people these days, in these days and times, you know, we're encouraged to find our people, right? Find the people who think like you, who are like you, uh, which, which just creates a lot of little subcultures, right? If I happen to be a part of the polka subculture, well, then I'm happy and content to be in the polka subculture. But that's as an evangelical Christian, I mean, even the word evangelical, euangelion, like, I'm called to go out and, and speak to other people about my subculture to continue using that language, which is, I think, a lot of what people find really offensive is like, no, 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 you've got your subculture over there, bigoted or otherwise. Stay there. I'm going to stay here. How dare you impose yourself on my space? And and I guess that's sort of one of the things that a lot of people wrestle with is this idea that I actually need to leave my own subculture to share my subculture with someone else, which is what the Bible calls us to do and yet is deeply uncomfortable do we, I, I don't see a biblical mandate for staying in my subculture. And yet it, it seems to be easier and easier today with the polarization of basically everything. I mean, if you can think of something that's not yeah. polarized, I'd be impressed. Like, you know, yeah. No, what I, do we I do with that. I, yeah, I agree with that a lot. In fact, actually, if, if I'd had more time tonight, <laughs> there's uh, never uh, enough time. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I would have wanted to do is talk a little bit about uh, features of our culture. And one of those, just one, is increasing polarization. Uh, it's not just that we have differences, it's that the differences are exacerbated and they're more obvious and they're more focused on. And we can also then, I mean, social media and these, these online communities uh, are very interesting too because you can now find everyone on earth who disagrees with you and has a different perspective. So the internet can be very pluralistic. But you can also build a totally false consensus by finding the weirdest views on anything. But there will be a substantial number of people who will believe them, and you can connect with people all over the world, and all of a sudden, you become the elect of the elect, whether it's politically, ethically. The echo chamber of whatever you want. hundred mm. percent. And I think you're absolutely right to step out of that. And you see sort of, again, and there, there, are, there, are, technolo there are reasons why technology uh, helps facilitate this kind of really negative interaction as well. Um, but what you see in large part is, I think, sort of this the outworking of, of tribalism where it's, it is in-group and out-group. And we as a church, I think, we form our in-group, and that can be very positive because we are a family. And there is something, there is a special relationship that ought to exist in the church. There should be a special relationship dynamic amongst Christians without question. But then when 
the wider society seems to be is not just seems but is tracking in directions which seem further and further away from what we hold and the trajectories and the speed the rapidity of the way we're moving away from sort of biblical morality it becomes frightening and then we 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 circle the wagons and instead of actually going out we stay in our groups and throw stones and we're just hurling grenades at people. And I think, unfortunately, because there is, I mean, obviously I do accept the truth of the Bible and, and you know, and and it steps a little bit away from good scripture. Start, yeah. Good start. Yeah, it's the NBC's podcast. <laughs> we, we didn't say this on every podcast, <laughs> yeah. but for this one. Just the ones that sound like I needed in to the, sound like. Yeah, in yeah. this cult, I think yeah. it's important to say that, you know, I, I affirm the truth of the Bible. Yeah. You know, I step in, then, then Christian philosophy is not infallible. So I want to say, you know, our Christian worldview analysis is not the same as the inspired, inerrant, infallible truth of God. But obviously now we're dealing with second order construction. Doesn't mean that it's wrong in the same way that, you know, science or sorry, um, the Bible doesn't give you scientific formulas for gravity, but that formula is right. You know, when you, when you get to it, we need to, we, we can be good at deconstructing the arguments and positions of others. And I, th- I think, because I think no, no credit to our intelligence. It's just that they're actually objectively wrong in God's universe. And as a Christian, it's like God has given us the book that has all the answers in the back. And so we're not brilliant, but we get the formulas right because God's told us the answers in large part, right? And, and, and so we're working with that revelatory advantage and no one else will get the, will get the answers right if they dispense with the key uh, you know, that, of God's revelation. So we can be good and effective at deconstructing and showing the contradictions in secular thought and all of the rest. But I think what we've done is, in large part, where we feel ourselves embattled and persecuted. And if we're honest, I think sinfully, I'll speak for myself, I think in sin, I can have a failure of faith where I'm actually not walking in faith and confidence in God, but I'm actually genuinely afraid. I'm afraid for myself. I'm afraid for my family. I'm afraid for the people that I love. And I'm afraid for the church and the direction that the nation is going. I am afraid. And when I'm afraid, I do not tend to act with loving kindness towards other people. I'm, it's, it's a fight or flight sort of thing. And so I think what we've done both is, is we've, we've engaged in flight to hunker down in our safe communities. And then we fought everyone else outside of us as if they're the enemy incarnate. And so... I think one of the things that you know that that we ought to have done is is we ought to have been open about our fear because it seems like things are spiraling out of control and that's scary. And and I think too then to recognize there is something in in the Nietzschean analysis of will to power and um you know again M- Michel Foucault that that all ideas all truths are really just tools of oppression. You know what? <sighs> There, I do tend to gravitate towards things that give me security ideologically we, and all of the rest. And so that I, I shouldn't be surprised if when society seems to be the, – the, the center of power is moving further away from where I'm located, I get angry. Like, like, but again, that's a sinful response. I'd like to say, oh, it's because of the glory of God. I hope that's part of it. 
I hope maybe a little bit of is righteous anger or righteous indignation, but there's so much of my own ego and sin and self-protection bound up with everything I do that I also want to recognize that my engagement with society in the direction society is going is a lot of it is predicated on sinful selfishness and a failure to trust in God and the gospel. Yeah, and without trying to make it political, although these two words are very political these days, speaking of polarization, conservatism and, and progressivism, progressivism, I guess is the word. I think that's a word. We'll go with it. I can edit that later if it's not. Um, you know, conservatism demands that we try to stay where we are. And progressivism demands that we're willing to move and go somewhere, right? We're progressing. The word itself gives that away. Uh, and there's a presumptiveness. I would say, you know, and again, I, I don't want to make this about politics, although I understand those words are very political, that, you know, God's correctness is held in conserve. Like, if we stay here, we'll be okay. But that assumes that God, that conservatism was where God is. Um, and there are certainly areas of our of our lives where we have to say, yes, like I see God present biblically in this place. And so I need to put my flag down. And I'm going to hold it here because this is the right hill to die on. I think that's a book by Gavin Ortland, right? The right hills did was I, I'm not going to remember the title right now, but anyways, it's a good little book. And yet there are other things where, you know, you, you we joke and we, we talk about this whole podcast and this whole idea of the Transforming Culture Seminar came from this comment about the church being 10 years behind. Tonight you joked about, no, 50 years behind. And yet there are people who feel like the world has changed so much in the last 50, 60 years and it's terrifying. But this, this idea that we need to hold our flags in the right spot when actually we're not paying attention to how God is moving, which isn't to say that progressivism is the right thing to do, but God moves. Absolutely. It, it is. And I, I try to, I'm not sure if I mentioned this. Um, I don't remember if it was a Q&A that wasn't recorded or in, in the actual sort of session time that I had. Um, Church, I think it was in the session, uh, church is influenced by culture and we can, we can have an idolatrous relationship with being au courant and, and whatever's novel and just capitulating and being totally swept away by whatever the novelties of our contemporary culture happen to be. We, we can be totally enslaved in an idolatrous relationship with contemporary culture. We can be totally enslaved in an idolatrous nostalgic longing for 1950s culture. And, and so I think sometimes you might say, okay, well, conservatism, we, yeah, we, we need to conserve what is right and good and true. And there are standards that ought to be fixed. And, and I would agree with that 100%. Um, but conservatism in uh, 1850s Virginia meant slavery. On the basis of race, I'm not so good with that. Yeah, and I, yeah, so, I'm really not. And so, if a conservative, and so the conservatives, well, let's. This is a, our occult. This is our institution. We've had this for generations. Uh, conservatism in Alabama, literally, as, as a quote, white elder says to, to says to uh, black members of a rally who would gather with Martin Luther King Jr. They they went to worship at the, this at a white church. Um, and we're told white people built this church, white money paid for this church. This is a place for white people to worship. Well, if that's con that, that was con the conservative position in racially segregated Alabama in the 1960s. So can we please have some progress? Right. So so I want to say, like, just just to s stick the, you know, the, the, the flag in the sand 
and say, well, this is the line eternally is to absolutize and make an idol. It makes a god of whatever culture you are at that era and time. You have now deified because it's infallible and that is the standard forever. On the other hand, progressivism, I would think today that what we what how our society defines progress in many ways, I would suggest is anything but. And this is where, you know, C.S. Lewis is, is helpful. It just in terms of, say, in terms of uh, saying things memorably, you know, uh, Lewis um, and often Lewis's uh, sort of philosophical theological points are then embedded in his uh, narrative stories as well. Right. Um, so but he, he talks about progress and he says, um, you know, uh, it's pretty commonsensical that progress is not always continuing to go in the same direction down the same road because if you're going the wrong direction the only way to make progress is to turn around and retrace your steps like so if your car is going the wrong way turn do a u-turn progress is not going forward if you keep going forward sometimes you're actually moving further away from your goal and so in terms of progress yeah the tra- what's the trajectory i would say christians should always be for progress but we need to define it biblically and the way it's defined today is anything, but then, then in, um, I believe it's in Prince Caspian. Uh, I might have that one wrong. Um, Caspian, uh, people are talking about, oh, you know, progress and it's progress, it's progress. And Caspian says, um, we've seen progress um, sort of in an egg. It's called going rotten in Narnia. <laughs> and there is that truth too. Sometimes like the, the, the progress can be a, a progress in a process of deterioration. It made it. I mean, another C.S. Lewis. I love Leaf by Niggle. It's just such a little short story that he wrote. That's Tolkien. Uh, uh, Tolkien. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but in Leaf by Niggle, the artist just can't finish. Right. Like there's no finish. And and so jumping off on that, you know, I think another part of this, especially when it comes to social justice, is that folks wrestle with, um, like, when can we be done with these things, right? And and you talked about Martin Luther King. And, and Dr. King is, is, you know, kind of the paragon of, you know, these things, but then you have George Floyd and Black Lives Matters, and it feels in many ways like it just will never stop. And, and when it comes to social justice, I'm wondering if you can and talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I know, I think cerebrally, the work will never be done, that there's always going to be some things we need to call ourselves back to from a faithfulness perspective. But wow, is it exhausting to have to constantly do that? How do we encourage each other as brothers and sisters in our little subculture to continue in faithfulness when things just can't seem to go better, get better? Yeah, that that actually that's a real that's actually a really profound question, and I, I don't have a great I don't, sorry, but not sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, no, actually, it's really it's really insightful, right? Um, yeah. and I'm not gonna have a great answer for it um, because it's gonna deal with practical application and like real life, like you know, rubber meets the road kind of stuff. Um, I, I would want to say, I, I, I once um, spoke uh, with, with a colleague at a Power to Change National Conference on, and our topic was in the environment, environmentalism, environmental ethics from a Christian perspective. And there was a student who came up afterwards and basically said, honestly, I, I care about these issues very, very much. And I'm just so discouraged. Like, what does it matter if I recycle my pop can? Like, like it seems like what I'm doing is with compared to industry, compared to travel, it's just, it's inconsequential. And one of the things that I, I said to her was, you are responsible before God 
to do what's right, no matter what. It doesn't matter if, if you were the only person in the world who did what was right in this moment. That's what you are accountable to before God. And, but also, you know, if a billion people each recycle a pop can, that, that little things start to add up to really profound differences. So I think, you know, the, the people though who are the most sensitive to these issues are the ones who, in a really painful irony, because they care so much, are more likely to burn out and get cynical and give up. And it's because they actually care. And so we need to protect those people because they're the best agents for change that we actually have. They're our leaders and our conscience. And because they're sensitive in their conscience, you can, they can get overwhelmed and the circuits explode. And it's just like, I'm done. No, no one really cares. No one's going to really change things. So I think we need to be, I think we need to be aware of our own potential to burn out in good causes and we need to protect one another and love one another. I think sometimes we need to cheer people on a lot more than we do and, and show up for them sometimes, even if we don't want to get out of bed and also imitate and model, even if it's not important to me, maybe I think it's a little bit extreme, but I obviously, I love you as a brother or sister. I am going to, out of respect for you, I'm going to honor you by trying to maybe take a step further than I normally would just so you don't get burned out. Like I, think, I think there's like, we can care for each other that way. Um, but I, I, I'd hasten to add this though. W one of the greatest plagues in human history has been the relentless search for utopia. And we are never gonna make it. And I think, and, and that's, I think it's actually okay for us to say, Doctrinally, because of total depravity, even on the wildest post-millennialist theonomist Christian reconstruction view, you will never have utopia until the new heavens and new earth and sin is finally banished forever. As long as, you know, the old joke, if you find a perfect church, don't join it or you'll wreck it. Yeah. It's the same thing. You find me a perfect society. Do not let me cross the border even as a tourist, right? Yeah. So I promise well, I'll screw it up. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And so, and of course, and, and literally, so Thomas More, when he writes utopia, utopia is a word that literally means no place. Like, it's a satire. This place doesn't exist. And, and whether it's the, you know, the, the, the Marxist Leninist revolution, whether it's Chairman Mao and the cultural revolution, whether it's liberal Western democracy, what, whether it's the divine right of kings, you know, whether it's well, let's just tear it all down and, and rebuild it up. Every human society will always be in some ways, hopefully glorious and wonderful and also a cesspool of sin and depravity and violence and oppression. And so what we want to do is we want to, having said that though, I think we also want to say apartheid in South Africa was wicked and ought to have been ended as a system. And I'm glad that it was, it was overthrown. S slavery in the Western world, glad that that was overthrown. Um, segregation, Jim Crow laws. Glad so, so undoubtedly, just to say, well, we'll never, we'll never get utopia is not a reason to give up. Uh, because there are a lot of, there are better and worse ways of organizing society. In some ways are horrible, absolutely horrific. They're an abomination before God. Um, but we'll never get to perfection. And, and I do think there are times too where, I, I, I'm not going to minimize any issues that are real issues today. But I think sometimes we can then start manufacturing issues and taking things out of proportion because we want a cause. 
and we want to be crusaders and we want, we have a messiah complex and we want enemies to destroy. And I think sometimes we can also give ourselves a bit of license to take a vacation because we're exhausted mentally and emotionally and spiritually and physically. Yeah. It's um, <clears throat> not a thing I talk about. I'm a vegetarian uh, and it's, it's because I'm concerned about the climate. Yeah. And I really wrestled with what to do because I, I don't love imposing values on other people. And a lot of climate initiatives require the imposition of, you know, no more driving your cars or no more flights or in the, you know, like your student said at that power to change conference, like what can one person do? And so even, even to the point where doing research said, well, the best thing one person can do is give up meat and become a vegan. I said, well, I don't cook. And if anyone who read or wrote those articles knew me, they would know that I would starve to death trying to feed my family. So I'm certainly not asking my whole family to become vegan because that would be a little bit unfair for my own personal convictions. Yeah. But vegetarianism is something that we can handle. Um, and yet I've got two small children who don't finish their McDonald's burgers sometimes. <laughs> and I stare at those burger patties and I'm like, those are going in the garbage. And so I'm going to eat it. And I, I don't feel bad for that quarter of a burger patty because I know that ultimately in the long run, we also have to have grace. And I think yeah. even just listening to now, thinking about the fact that, you know, one of the antidotes to burnout is just being graceful towards others, certainly, but also towards ourselves when we run into situations where we don't have the correct answer or the whole answer or anything remotely close to what we need saying, you know what, in God's economy, I can do this much and I'm going to do my absolute level best. Like you said, you know, I'm doing my best before the Lord. Yeah. And I think too, part of that again is, is, just, is just listening to people mm -hmm. and getting to know people. So like, I, I had never contemplated being vegetarian, you know, for basically my whole life. And then, um, uh, a few years ago, um, I was going to, uh, with a colleague going to write a book on ethics and I was starting to teach ethics. And part of that's, you know, really, you know, reading about environmental ethics and philosophy and then animal rights and animal liberation. And you know, I, I try to read, I try not to read just evangelicals about issues. Like actually like, yeah. like what, what, so what does Peter Singer say about this? Yeah, I think Paul, Michael Paul Wecky was here few weeks ago and he said for every two books I read I agree with I read one I don't agree oh, with absolutely. because I want to understand what people are thinking right 100%, it's, it's the same it's way the echo chamber in a yeah. Gutenberg press era <laughs> totally well and, and how would you feel like if if people's view of and I've met people like this uh if people's view of you as a Christian was based on reading Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens how fairly would you feel you were treated Right. Like it's just so. So, yeah, I, I've learned that even even, um, you know, those, you know, debates about, you know, between charismatics and non charismatics and, you know, infant baptism, and believers, baptism, and all that kind of stuff. I, I've certainly learned that people who believe in infant baptism do not always fairly represent the believers Baptist position and vice versa. But, you know, Baptists are very good at misrepresenting Presbyterian and Anglican arguments for paedo baptism sometimes. So if I want to know why someone believes in infant baptism, I'm not going to read a credo Baptist about you know interpretation i'll just read the person hear it from the person themselves like right. i just think that there's there's fairness and wisdom there right um and so i so i've read books by vegans and you know top-notch ethicists from secular perspectives who are saying that veganism is ne a necessity not only in terms of um, animal cruelty the uh, but also in terms of environment and all the rest and um i think that you can take those positions for good and bad reasons. I have a ton of respect, frankly, for people who choose vegetarianism. Um, I have not 
but I have also, um, when I was starting to do that study, consciously cut back on meat consumption um, for, for a couple of reasons. One was um, environmental impact. One was um, farming methods. Um, the commodification of animals as economic units for consumption and the conditions they were raised in and I realize that there are certain, I realize you know, that not everything's a factory farm. I do understand that. But I also recognize that uh, a lot of the conditions, these, these are beings that feel pain and can have, this, this, this will be taken the wrong way if anyone ever listened to this podcast this far anyway. Um, but they, they can have a, a higher or lower quality of life. And, and, I, and I do not believe that God created animals and Gave, yes, he gave us dominion over them, but I do not believe that he created animals for our exploitive overconsumption and to treat them as just as nothing but units of food for ourselves. Yeah, I don't see God endorsing exploitation very much in scripture. Right? <laughs> yeah, in, in anything. <laughs> in Actually, any context, yeah, right? Probably, People, I, animals, the land, land like uh, Sabbath abs- rest, right? Absolutely. Like, no, you will stop. And you will trust me. Yes. One in seven, one in, you know, yeah. so. So if I had more time tonight to talk about like yeah. sort of um, environmental ethics, right, which I'd wanted to do, but then didn't really talk about it at all. Uh, <laughs> that's why out, this, we're doing this right now. Time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's one of the things I, I would want to say is that a huge problem with, with these issues is issues start to cluster together. So one of the things that, that's absolutely causing havoc is that our economy, I don't care if it's socialist or capitalist, the way it's manifested is our economy is based on greed and overconsumption. And we are, we, the best thing we can do is not to recycle, but, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. Recycle is actually supposed to be the third step. And, you know, if you can reuse something several times before you recycle it, then that's obviously going to cut down on, on waste by an order. If you reuse it four times, you just cut down waste by a, you know, an order of four. But the biggest one is reduce. But who does that? Like, like how many people in our society are actually genuinely, or even the church saying, you know what, I am going to consciously choose not to consume as much of that product as I want, as I can. Like, why don't we actually just step back and live within our means? And all of a sudden our credit card debt goes away. Our, you know, our health improves, the environment improves. We have more time to spend time with people because we're not over consuming. And it's, but this, I I mean, this is, I mean, we're, (laughs) this is gonna be a long episode. That's fine. We're going to roll with it. (laughs) But it, it all comes back to this idea of conservatism and progressivism and, and all of this where, you know, that is dangerous language in some evangelical circles because it doesn't sound like the narrative that we're supposed to be spreading about what it is. And, and I certainly know that people outside the church, uh, you know, part of my story and and most people listening to this would have heard this already is like wandering from my faith in university and being exposed to outsiders views of evangelical Christians. And it's not super impressive. And yet somehow God brought me back to it. But now I have this, I'm grateful for this outside perspective of, oh, this is like the way we see things is not how it's actually being played out. People are not perceiving the, what we want them to perceive. Um, you know, this this language of overconsumption and greed and all that i i you know i come back to the i think it was the creator of gdp said this is not an appropriate measure of national income and how like equality and all these things and yet it's the thing that we've settled on is the thing we use for economic purposes and yet that is anathema in some circles yep. and, I'll, and, I'll just connect, and i'll just connect that a little bit to yeah. you know the back to sort of the the theme of the nights in terms of conversation 
was, so yeah, you go off to university and all of a sudden, and I'm not saying that, you know, evangelicals, I'm not saying that, that anyone in your church community sort of, you know, looks askance at you for being a vegetarian, but, but let's say they do. I mean, I'm sure there are people who are vegan who get, and, and there's a difference between like, you know, good natured teasing and like actually, you know, pretty offensive comments. So, so let's say you're a vegan and, and, and you become a vegan because you, you have a strong conviction on the basis of informed reading about how animals are treated as they're raised and how, how, you know, how milk is extracted and produced and the condition of the dairy cows and, you know, the, the wire cages that the chickens are stuffed in and, you know, the, the way the eggs are harvested. And again, so so and let's, and there's balance that needs to be brought to that discussion. But let's say that you, you actually just actually care, like you, you genuinely care. And then in the church, you're kind of, God made animals. He put, he gave us dominion. So what's wrong with you? Well, you know, all of a sudden, why am I actually more, why is my sensitive conscience and my attempt to live as a good steward in God's world? Why is that, why does it seem that that is honored more by secular humanists in my university than by my brothers and sisters in the church? Or let's say, let's say, and again, I have no right to speak about this in some ways, but let's say I'm um, black living in downtown Toronto. And I have experienced when, when the Toronto police were carting. And I'm, and I'm not, if the problem is, so you say anything about any of these issues and people overinterpret what you're saying. They try to read between the lines and, and you know, the, all kinds of inferences that I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not implying anything more than this statement. Let's say, because without any doubt, I'm not saying it's, without any doubt, there were bad times. There were bad incidences where police stopped people on the basis of their skin color. Yeah. Like, can we just acknowledge that? Racially profiled. Can them. we just say that that? Mm-hmm. No, no, you maybe want to defend racial profiling. I don't care. But like, can we just say that that happened? It happened. So, so then you have a really fine young Christian who's going to university, male or female, whatever. And they've had this experience. And they start reading about civil rights history. And and I read I read a biography of Martin Luther King Jr. just not too long ago, and like I, I've spent a fair amount of time in South Africa. I read Civil War history. My dad loves uh, reading Civil War history. I just wonder if Christians are so ignorant about history that they they actually don't have any idea how black people have been treated by white people in North America. And I'm not a revisionist. Like I, I am, I, I am not like a radical leftist. I'm just saying, like the sheer historical facts—not revisionist history, but history—it's deplorable, and the consequences are horrific. And so, so then I start reading that, and it is entirely. And there are people today in our evangelical churches, um, like John Piper, for example. John Piper will say he grew up in South Carolina, mm-hmm. and until he was nine years old. South Carolina was strictly segregated. That means that there are black people who are alive today in our evangelical churches who grew up on the other side of that segregation. Mm-hmm. So, so let's say all of a sudden our fine young university student who's been carded and had that kind of negative interaction and their grandfather was in segregated, maybe, maybe marched with Martin Luther King Jr., and they get in the church, and every time racial issues are brought up, it's pff, 
CRT, that's of the devil. They, well, they don't even know what critical race theory is. And I'm not endorsing it. I just think you should probably know what it is before you, you slam it. Or intersectionality, that's garbage. They don't even know what it is. Or, oh, come on, I'm colorblind. Aren't we past that? We're, we're, so, we're decades after the civil rights movement. You know, and, and if, if it's, it's the welfare. If they, if, if, and, and so what you get is, from, from your perspective, again, the church seems to reject everything that you care about in terms of this issue. And it seems like the church, frankly, is perpetuating the same kind of bias and ignorance that you, that your secularist friends are repudiating. It seems like they actually care more about you than the church. Same with the environmental issues. You know, so if you're scoffing at climate change, well, 75% of young people surveyed, 10,000 young people surveyed, you know, in, in, in all, all across the world. 75% of them say that they are afraid for the future because of climate change and they feel betrayed by the older generation and their government. Okay, maybe climate change isn't happening. Oh, fine, you make that, that argument if you want to. But the person you're talking to, if you're talking to a young person, three out of four are scared for their future. And the reason we don't know that is because in our subculture, where we've circled the wagons, we just live in our cult. We think that everyone is just like the kids we've indoctrinated with these particular views. So, so then you you care about Greta Thunberg and, and you care about these things, and and you are convinced that climate change is a very real and present danger, and it's actually going to affect the the poorest people in the world. And so you care about your neighbor and you care about the poor, and so you care about this issue. And then the evangelical church is just you know throwing stones at progressive leftists. And everyone who says Black Lives Matter is a communist and everyone who says that, you know, you know, we we should care about the environment's a dupe. And why are you gonna stay in that community? And, and so that's where I feel like the church has has really missed an opportunity to build bridges with society, but also to protect and care for people who belong to us, especially young people who are exploring new ideas. And seem to find more understanding and compassion and acceptance in secular campuses and university subcultures than they do with their brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so if we could just, again, learn to identify the truth in these positions and locate them in the biblical framework and worldview, we can show people that actually it's the church, it's God's, it's in God's word where we find the truth and how to address these things. And it's God's word which shows us why we care so deeply about these things. And unfortunately, because the church has politicized itself, and I'll, I'll use very strong language here because you know, the podcast is probably over. No one's listening at this point anyway. Well, um, I'm publishing all of it. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, in some places, the church has prostituted itself to right-wing politics and political power. In other places, the church has prostituted itself to left-wing politics and political power. And what I think what we want to do is we want to listen to that university student who comes back and who is fired up about racial reconciliation, and we want to hear them out. And we don't, the last thing we want to do is, be, is present ourselves as sarcastic and sneering about and dismissive of those kinds of concerns. And I think the evangelical church, in large part, when it came to how to interact with Black Lives Matter and you know, climate change and these sorts of issues, I think the attitude the church took towards them was more damaging than the conclusions they drew. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, to bring it full circle, because this podcast does need to end eventually, <laughs> you know, that, that word conversation that is in the title, conversations about social justice, 
if it's one-sided, that's not a conversation, that's a lecture, right? And we need to be willing to engage and listen to other people, even people we might actually disagree with and be willing to, to concede on non-biblical points that we might not have all the answers. Um, listen, Steve, thank you so much for all of your time and you have given us so much of it tonight and in preparation, we are blessed by your ministry. We're praying for you for heritage and uh, yeah, looking forward to having you back for season two when we get double the episode length. We can keep going. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, thanks, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much to all of you for listening today and to our guest, Steve West, for bringing so much wisdom and humor. I spent just as much time laughing while preparing this episode as I did back in the summer when we were recording it. Next week is our last episode for season one of Transforming Culture, and we're looking forward to having Sean Sheeran with us talking about unity in the church, a great way to end this podcast season. That episode will drop next Monday morning. As always, if you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, please share it with a friend, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or give us a like on social media. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Transforming Culture is a production of Muskoka Bible Center. It's hosted and produced by Luke LaRocque. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Abhishek Varghese. Audio and technical support from Charles West and the Summer 2022 AV team. The theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Graphic design by Christina Tabakal-Hotz. We'll see you next Monday for our next episode of Transforming Culture.